0: Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, unlicensed lunch therapist, Adam Roberts. My guest today is the owner of one of the coolest cookbook stores in the country, maybe the world, Omnivore Books in San Francisco. Her name is Celia Sack, and I'm a huge fan of hers. Not only has she exposed me to some of the coolest cookbooks in my collection, but I love to follow her on social media where she tweets and Instagrams as Omnivore Books. In today's session, we talk all about the food that Celia ate growing up.
1: The only thing I wouldn't eat, of course, was anything shaped like an animal. Like she'd make a really cute pancake in the shape of a bunny and I would start crying.
0: Her time in middle school.
1: By the time I entered, I was like obviously a lesbian, but really bad at sports. So I had nothing going for me at all.
0: And the most valuable cookbook in her collection.
1: The first edition of a Renaissance cookbook that was the the first book to picture a fork and the first cookbook to actually have illustrations in it
0: so without further ado here is my lunch therapy session with celia sack all right well hey celia thank you so much for doing lunch therapy
1: my pleasure i'm happy to be here
0: you know i had i think of all my patients you and i had the most intimate beginning to all this because you've never used zoom before
1: that's right that was that was a big hurdle to get over for us so we had to
0: we i had to like we had to walk through that together but yes it was awesome. good
1: though now i'm now i'm here and i'm confident ish <laughs> <laughs> well, well
0: you were saying oh you look lovely you were saying though that um You you hadn't used Zoom at all during the pandemic, which is amazing for a business owner. And
1: I were like, yeah, my Paula and I were like, you know, let's uh, we're going to make this our goal to never have to use Zoom because it sounds horrible from (laughs) what we're hearing. Paula's Uh, brother is a teacher, and he's just hating being on it. And everyone that I knew, you know, we're so with both of our stores. She runs the pet store that's next door to ours that we also own together, and. So the two of us are just so used to interacting with people all the mm-hmm. time and in person, and we really value that. So we just didn't want to get into a habit of connecting over, over video. It just seemed like a slippery slope.
0: And here I am ruining everything for you. Yeah,
1: well, it's okay. <laughs> We're right at the end. So yeah. I, I think, yeah, Zoom is definitely going to fade out for sure.
0: <laughs> I know. I, I wonder how their stock is doing. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, so Celia, so um, before we get into your therapy session, which we'll, yes. we'll, we're going to go very deep, but I think, I
2: curious,
0: as, but... yes, as a starting point, <laughs> though, I guess a good question would be, how did you fare during the pandemic with your bookstore? I mean, how did it go for you? Was, was it difficult? Was it, I mean, because people love to cook. I mean, people started cooking more in the pandemic, so I'm curious how that was for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I keep saying, you know, if I owned a travel bookstore, I really would have been in bad trouble. But uh, having a cookbook store was really, really good. People really did need to cook a lot, and a lot of people needed to learn how to cook. The only thing I really hated was that my success was sort of at the cost of so many restaurateurs who are my customers and friends and colleagues, Mm -hmm. losing business, which was really hard to watch.
2: Mm -hmm. But
1: so many people responded and came in and we really upped our online sales and game and you know started to, I had always just had books on there that I thought were hard to get because I figured everyone would just get books on Amazon if they wanna buy it online. Um, So they were books that you couldn't find there, Mm -hmm. but I was really wrong. People really were willing to support me and pay full price from like Alabama. You know, people I'd never uh-huh. heard of were coming out of the woodwork and buying things from me that were, you know, probably 40% off on Amazon. So it was really heartwarming and surprising to me that people were doing
0: that I bought a box from you that had um, Melissa Clark's cooking in French I'm trying to think what I got I was like a bunch of books that had just come out at the beginning of the pandemic and yes well you know but I was happy to do it I mean I'm curious like was there a trend in terms of the kind of books people were buying during the pandemic
1: totally I mean it went in several phases that went along with the with the whole pandemic. You know, at first it was all bread baking. Oh yeah,
0: one, one of the books yeah. I bought from you was Artisan <laughs> Sourdough, or one of those sourdough books. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. it
1: was all sour, almost all sourdough. <laughs> yeah. we were, You know, the publishers ran out, we ran out, you know, the publishers, it was really interesting. So many of the books that they had had on their lists for years, suddenly everybody wanted it. And so they all went out of print with each phase of the pandemic that came in of popularity. So first it was all... It was all the bread books, and everyone was totally into it. And, and then, after about three or four weeks, you could tell every single person was like, fuck this. I'm <laughs> not, not doing it anymore. And the, the, the sales just stopped, of those. Oh, yeah. It, it, was, it was like musical chairs, like, Oh, no, we have like a huge <laughs> pile of... That's so
2: funny. Yeah, my uh,
0: my uh, sourdough <laughs> starter has died an ignoble death it, in my exactly, refrigerator. Yeah.
1: Exactly. You're not alone. You'll be left. Yeah. But so many people had these. It was just crazy. So, um, so then we're stuck with all those. And then in March, of course, of course the Black Lives Matter movement really um, caught on fire again. I mean, people forget that it had been going before that, but really... Um, picked up and everyone wanted books about African American culture and cuisine. And so those books that had been out for a, a long time, you know, and Lewis or um, Tony Tipton Martin's book Jubilee, all mm-hmm. of those started selling out like crazy. Bryant Terry's vegan uh, African cookbooks, they they all were like impossible to get. So wow. That was really cool, and those have continued to be popular. But still, they, you know, at some point, it did. You know, after the publishers reprinted everything, those kind of died back down to their their more regular popularity, which is still very popular. But.
0: I have to ask, like during that period, without naming names, because we all know who maybe I'm talking about. But like, as <laughs> people were as people were called out during that period, did you, uh, fi- yes. did you find that their books cookbook sales went down?
1: Yeah, that was another thing that just like stopped very suddenly after being super popular.
2: Uh Um, And
1: so, yeah, so it's interesting. People are just sort of clawing back now to um, to the actual content of. That those cookbooks which are is actually really really good I have to say so,
0: so what was the next trend after black lives matter was there another trend
1: oh, then it just got into more the seasonal stuff which is right. what we see every year so you know as the as the summer hits it's barbecue books and books for mom and things like that um and then it gets into the fall and one pot meals and cooking like that and then everybody's doing all the the big so cookbook publishing there are two times of year that the big cookbooks come out from publishers and that's spring and fall. And the fall ones are kind of the heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. So in fall, all the heavy hitters come out and everybody starts buying them for Christmas and as, as presents and for themselves, they get very excited. And one thing we never used to have on our website was pre-orders of stuff. We just had it that you could, um, you know, once it came out, we would put it up on our website, but we started to realize that people really wanted to pre-order things in advance and we would get the publisher to, usually people come out and give a talk at our store and then we get them to sign it. But of course, last year we couldn't. So we got the publishers to promise to send us signed book plates mm-hmm. for the books. And that was a huge help. Like the Dessert Person um, by Claire Stafford. Oh yeah. You know how many of those we we sold over, since since it came out? Oh. 600.
2: Wow. 600.
1: I'm a 500-square-foot piss space, bot.
2: <laughs> That's <laughs> and amazing. And
1: And the majority of them were shipped afar. And so that was incredible, all because they gave a signed book plate. So now they're starting to see, oh, if we give these cookbook stores book plates ahead of time or, you know, promise them ahead of time. They'll put that on the pre-order, and then the author will post about it, and then we get all these orders. So that just That's happened with the new Tartine bread book, and it's and, and it's not just me; it's happening for now. Serving down in LA, and Kitchen Arts and Letters, and Book Larder, So, which is great.
0: And do you personally like? If you were out buying a cookbook for yourself, does having a signed cookbook mean something to you? Because I'm I'm just curious. Like, I have um, a lot. I have a lot of cookbooks, and I have some of them signed because I'm friends with their authors. But what, yeah. what do you think? I'm curious if that means anything to you? Yeah.
1: I mean, I have to admit, I have some here that are signed. You know, they're inscribed to me from Alice Waters, right. or um, Adam you know, Adam Robert. Uh, yes, Adam Robert. <laughs> <my dad>. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. from Austria. you know some of the some of the people that I've met. It is really nice to have them, and of course, I love that they're like you know, thanks so much for hosting me. Uh, it's, that's so sweet. It's totally cool. It's yeah, so true,
2: and
0: that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that's like a personal address to you. I mean, I, I, th- yes, I think yeah. just the signature. It is almost, it's almost like baseball cards, you know, when you were a kid or something. It is. Yeah. But,
1: you know, I was the head of modern literature at an auction house for a long time. And so... I have to admit I kind of got caught up in that like I would buy if for instance you know like John Updike would come to give a talk in San Francisco and I would buy a bunch of his older books first editions of his older books and I would take them to get signed mm. by him not to sell I mean I know that it gives them value but I just wanted them for myself and it was really fun and you feel like you're offending them if you ask them to just sign it because that does make it more valuable if it's not personalized. But oh.
2: um,
1: but I would always, I was too, I, I just didn't have the chutzpah to say, we just not sign it to anyone. So I would always say, can sign it to me? But John Updike actually said, would you mind if I just inscribed the first one to you and
0: the rest I just signed? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I totally. <laughs> <laughs> Please, yeah, that's yeah, so really. interesting. I got, I mean, my, yeah. I, yeah, one of my favorite authors is John Lar, who wrote the Tennessee Williams biography. Oh, sure. Yeah. And he, he wrote a book about Joe Orton, the gay playwright from like oh, London. Yeah, and I, and yeah, it was Fair one of my, readers. yeah, Pick Up Your Ears. And that was one of my favorite books. And I went to a New Yorker festival event to get him to sign it. And he wrote <gasps> the most like obscure oh. thing inside of it. I can't even remember oh, what he yeah. wrote. It was just like, it was like a riddle. It was like, the pictures, yeah, I was like, yeah. Adam, the pictures may have meaning, but da, 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 I was like, I don't know what this oh means. Oh my God.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, the best actually, uh, so for me, what I love most are what's called an association copy. Mm-hmm. So it's from one person to another and both are well known for something or, or have an association with each other. Oh, so okay. a lot, some of my collection is vintage, like, early lesbian literature okay that is inscribed like radcliffe hall the well of Lon- loneliness inscribed to her lover Ooh, okay. um, and you know and from john radcliffe hall which was her sort of the, her pen name that she used or not her pen name her name for herself um so you know or with that partner's book played in it and so i have a bunch of those that are really cool i have one by Vita sackville west that's also signed by her husband, Harold and things like on their, on each of their poems. So I love books that bring characters together from history mm-hmm. into one place at the same time. Well, and, it makes me and, think and of like, of,
0: it makes me think of books as objects too. Cause it's sort of like mm-hmm. as a collector, it's sort of like they work on two levels. You can read them and enjoy them, but also it's, yes. like, it's like a artifact or like an Indiana Jones like thing that you can. Exactly. Out of
1: Exactly. I've got a book from, um, that, uh, belonged to Elizabeth David and Mm. she inscribed it to Jeremiah Tower, the chef from. Oh, wow. Yeah thing like in memory of the wonderful summer we spent together. And I was just like, yes, this is so cool. And one from, I have one from um, James Beard inscribed to MFK Fisher about that they spent together in Paris. So, I mean, and those are all my personal collection, but those are, you know, it's so cool because it puts them together. Oh, They were together at this time and and playing together and knew each other. It's cool. Well,
0: I could talk to you about cookbooks all day and maybe we'll get more into that, but we have come to the moment (laughs) <laughs> to find out what you had for lunch today.
1: All right. So I thought long and hard about what I wanted to have for lunch today. Mm-hmm. On my days off, there I have a favorite place to go. Uh, and it's over in the Richmond district. Uh, and it's called Bun Mi. And it's just a really great Vietnamese sandwich place. And they have other Vietnamese dishes. So I got my favorite, the grilled pork bun mi that has uh, pate, liver pate on it. And this delicious smoky grilled pork on it and, um, and spicy jalapenos and cilantro and the works um, and it's a perfect crunchy bread and it's just like such comfort food and homey and I absolutely love it well so that is what I had
0: yeah there's a lot to work with there I mean <laughs> okay. there might need two hours no um, well actually the first thing that I'm responding to is you know it's, it's just interesting the different people I've had on this show that I've had Food people, and then I've had comedians and writers and people who are not or directors who aren't necessarily in the food world. And the right. way the way you just described the sandwich was so enthusiastic and so <laughs> specific. So I guess my first question is how and when did this fascination with food happen? And did it precede your fascination with books? Or was Ooh, books first food. or food first? Very
1: good question. Yeah. I think books first, then food, then cookbooks. <laughs> so okay. um Yeah. So I was really, really into books. In fact, ironically, this restaurant is just down the street from the first bookstore I ever kind of worked at where I fell in love with the girl who worked behind the counter and then worked my way behind the counter too. (laughs) (laughs) Really taught me about, um, about used book selling and book scouting, which is like one of my favorite things in the world to do. Um, Just like hunting around for good used books. So that that was a delicious thing for me that I, that I, have savored for a long time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but I guess when I when I moved back to San Francisco after college, I, when I went to New York uh, for college, I got an internship at Christie's, the auction house, and okay. really continued my love of um, of rare things. I was in 19th century European paintings, but I was still collecting rare books, all these early signed Edward Gorey books that they would have at, at bookshops and in New York. Just
0: to rewind the clock for a second, though, yeah. as a, as a kid, were you a big reader?
1: Um yes I okay. loved to I love to read you know um uh Harriet the Spy was one oh, yeah. of my favorites. of and, course you know yeah. all, all of those books from the 70s were uh and early 80s but I was also like a tree climber I was very much outside okay. all the time um always scraping myself up running around the neighborhood
0: Interesting so um, that kind yeah, of makes but sense I are
1: also yeah. really into digging in through people's stuff like hmm. It, the, the block I grew up on, which was in San Francisco, had a lot of Victorian houses, and one feature of those is that their doors usually on the stairs that go up to the house. There's a door under it that leads to where people keep their garbage cans but you can go in and close the door and be private in there. And so I would go around as a kid, I love to go into other people's and go through their their junk mail that they've thrown out but not opened and pretend it was to me. and oh,
2: that's really <laughs> and
1: interesting okay. yeah so very interesting and then I was an early dumpster diver before before homelessness was a, an issue here I was always into dumpsters and digging through and finding you know of course I was a stamp collector so I would find you know cool stamps on things but I I'd, I'd find all sorts of things and sort of make up stories about a pretend life so that wow. was you know, so my interest in like book scouting and digging through other people's lives and experiences, I think has been the long time thing.
0: Well, it makes me think about your relationship to objects, like Mm-hmm. things. Like it, it makes me wonder like when you were a little kid, did you have like a drawer full of treasures or like oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's really interesting. I don't know what that means. Yeah. I'm, I'm not I'm not advanced enough of a lunch therapist to know what the significance <laughs> of things are, but but I do feel like yeah. possessions and like holding on to things is there it, it does reveal something psychologically. Maybe uh, we can yes. explore what that is. I don't know. So,
1: and I'm from a family of collectors. My both uh-huh. parents been collectors. So I think that sort of came naturally to me but i was so into god i i would dig through the um gutters i mean i sound just dis- i sound like like a sewer rat but really i would go into the gutters of um uh, around the house like or you know like on on i grew up on sacramento and street so right at the corner i remember every time Too, it must have driven my parents crazy because I always did find like money or rings and things like that. I was always rewarded for for this. I never got like a a rat that I pulled out, (laughs) like get a wedding ring or something really (laughs) valuable. So it was always proved to be the correct thing. But I didn't really get into food. I think until my partner Paul and I got together in like '95 and or '93 together 25 years so um so we yeah a while since I was 25 oh my gosh we just yeah a long time um but we both just slowly got into food it was really fun how we sort of discovered it together and I remember us really making fun of this cookbook that everybody had called Sunday Suppers at Luke's.
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) I love that. calling it
1: that. Yeah. But we (laughs) thought it was hilarious. The recipe had like one thing we had never heard of in it. And we just thought it was so funny. And then we found ourselves down in LA one weekend, and someone said we should go to this restaurant, Luke. (laughs) <laughs> and we know what it was. And so we found our way there and we we're like, oh my God, it's <laughs> No, We've just been saying it wrong all this time. And that was kind of an awakening for us. We just fell in love with that food after having made fun of the cookbook. Of and the way it was
0: pronounced. We, well, it's, yeah. It's and th-
1: it, and you know, that yeah. and the recipes. And so then we got into it. And then we we're like, well, let's go look at that cookbook actually and see if we can make any of this.
0: It was sad because they closed during the pandemic, which is really, really sad. I mean, Suzanne Goin, who is the chef there, she... I think she's one of those. I feel like L.A. has its secret um, group of chefs that like don't like mm-hmm. really break through the like East Coast media. Like you don't see them on the cover, yeah. of the and Stuff, but it's like Nancy. I mean, Nancy Silverton is pretty famous, but but I just feel like like L.A. kind of keeps its chefs kind of within its, its own. Definitely, order. yeah. Yes,
1: those guys from Animal.
0: Oh yeah. John and Vinny. They, yeah. Like yeah.
1: You never heard of them outside of it. Yeah.
0: Well, I was going to yeah. ask you, and you know, this is a strange question, but, but I had, I, I did take a psychology class once and my, oh, te- all right. <laughs> and my, te- my teacher, well, so I accidentally went to law school. That's a whole other story. And uh, <laughs> when, So many
1: people I know accidentally went to law school.
0: Yeah. And yeah. when I was there, this teacher, uh, I think her name was Martha Duncan, I think wrote a book called Beloved Prince. Beloved prisons, romantic outlaws, and a lot of her book had to do with like people actually wanting to go to prison, like repeat offenders who go to prison. But it had, but it also had to do with like gunk and like slime and like people's fascination with like, wow. yeah, you know, like like the way kids play with like you know slime Ooh. and they make it goo. Yeah. And for some reason, I don't know why, when you were talking about being in the gutters and like pulling out things, and then I was thinking about like cooking. Like, do you see a connection between like getting your ah. hands? in a bowl of like meatloaf and like mixing the meat together and like the
2: butter <laughs> and pulling out. Yes, the fun- I
1: guess I do I mean especially like mud I used to love when I was growing up we had a farm up in Heelsburg in the wine country and it, but it was it was not vineyards it was actual farm and I loved walking around barefoot all year round there and you know squeaking through the mud and digging through things and yeah finding insects is yes so that makes total sense
0: yeah and it's really interesting to think about mm-hmm. your relationship to cookbooks because it is kind of the perfect thing for you because because of your love for um touching things and like being because mm-hmm. it's like a book that's about actual like actions and doing stuff I don't know it's like yeah. it's yes. as opposed to like a book work of literature which is more in the head as yeah. Opposed to like an, yeah. An no,
1: it's not as actionable. The only thing that really comes up against that theory yeah. is um, my love for animals, and okay. I mean, I always remember because I, I really love eating meat, but I love animals, and I'll never forget when I was like ten. I went to a animal rights no i must have been like 13 or 14 because i went by myself but to an animal rights uh rally up at davis uc davis and i remember sitting in the back of the bus eating my roast beef sandwich saying, oh, wait
0: you ate a roast beef sandwich on the way to an <laughs> yeah. animal rights i know rally? i know that's how much oh. i
1: liked my roast beef sandwiches that i, I was the, one of those people that had to have like the same sandwich for a whole year everything uh-huh. It was a little OCD, but anyway, um, I really, uh, so while I love getting my hands in there and everything, uh, I've never killed an animal. I've mm-hmm. never had to go through heavy duty butchery and, um, I, you know, we, we on the pet store, we were dog walkers for 10 years. And so mm-hmm. that, that's the only little bit of a dichotomy there,
0: right? Yeah. That... But
1: I love meat. I can't help it. So I, I do eat it, but I'm, I'm one of those one of those annoying people that's like I can't watch it die yeah well I, I mean survive. I mean I feel like
0: you're in the center of mindfulness in terms of like people being conscientious mm. about everything from like composting so like you know, yes true. what, what the, you know so do you find like living in San Francisco that sometimes you can be overwhelming like deciding whether to get like organic local the, the, <sighs> totally. The, you know, yeah totally
1: I mean luckily there are enough stores like buy right which is wonderful that you won't you don't even have to choose between them they everything in there is well chosen if it's not organic then they chose it because it's close by or they have a good reason Mm -hmm. for it you can really trust the fish monger which is that's a really rare thing usually you don't know where your fish is coming from and they're very trustworthy so i'm pretty i'm pretty solid on especially my meats uh and fish going from Organic places, although it's I feel only like, because the taste is better, really,
0: I agree. But it's so interesting what's happening right now because in L.A., Belcampo meats, which oh was so expensive, yeah, oh. and that's like that when they were getting it off the truck that like sells its mass market supermarket. So it's like, how do you know who to
1: trust? I don't even see how they can reopen. I mean, Uh, really, I I read that and I was like, no, that that trust is gone because the trust, like what I was saying about the fishmonger, that trust is so, it's like the trust in a marriage, you know, if you break that, to build that back up is going to take a long, long time. But it also happened at the, um,
0: yeah at the Willow's Inn on Lummi Island in Washington state, there was that big right. ex- expose <sighs> that he was like serving. And I, I went there with Craig, but he was like, so, and we thought it was the most incredible food we'd ever had, but it was like, oh, you know, the chickens were coming from Costco and the scallops oh, were- I down. love the guy in
1: that article who said, um, it's not even like physically possible to feed that many people from the food on our island in a yeah. week. It's yeah. like two days worth, you know? So right. do the math, <laughs> like, oh yeah.
0: Um, All right. Well, we have to steer this back to you and your story. Okay. So I feel like we left something out because you talked about your childhood. You talked about collecting things. You talked about having a girl you had a crush on starting in the book industry. Yes. And then I think we missed the beat where you got into cookbooks.
1: Oh, well, um, Hmm. I when I was working. So then after I graduated from college, I moved back to San Francisco and got a job at an auction house out here that was all rare books. And I became one of two specialists there. We wrote all the catalogs and did all the all the research and descriptions. And I was the head of Modern Lit, but also you became a specialist in whatever came through. So mm-hmm. you would never know this about me, but I am the like rare golf book specialist. <laughs> of those. Or at least I was for a number of years. Wow, it, I had no, least, no idea. You get, yes, you would get one good collection or one so-so collection, sell it, do well with it, and you'd start getting better and better collections. And whichever one of us had had time to catalog that original group became the expert in it so I became an expert in that and angling books (laughs) and you know all sorts of weird things but the books on food were the ones that were most interesting to me and Mm -hmm. particularly I mean I love the cookbooks but particularly the ones that said something about the culture of the place Mm. so I love like the um, colonial Indian cookbooks that are so interesting because you know half of them tell you to to avoid anything, anything that was like created there. You don't want to, you know, don't trust the servants. You should just give them extra money when they go to the market because they're going to steal from you anyway. Just terrible stuff. And then half of them embrace the culture and embrace the food and want you to try things and are respectful of the, uh, native cooks from those places so mm. it's really interesting to to see that and then I really loved the books that were about and still have collection of these of um, books that are about how to open your own retail store mm. uh, which was interesting to me anyway because you know I went on to open the pet store so I really mm-hmm. love retail in general and that psychology but there's a whole series that used to be published that they they don't do this anymore on like how to um a great butcher shop one i had how to set up your butcher shop um with your glass cases and it's Mm -hmm. so english it's like um sheep's head, sheep's stomach, sheep's heart, (laughs) fern and pot, fern and pot, (laughs) 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 you know, or there's one called um, roadside marketing, and it's all about, it was from 1920s, all about now that cars are in existence, they can come all the way out to your farm to buy from you, they don't have to buy in the city, Mm
2: -hmm. and
1: so this is how you set up your roadside stand, if you're in a dip in the road, do it like this, if you're on a hill, do it like this, and this is how to talk to your uh, customers, if they complain, this is what you should say. You know, I mean, I, I just love that. I love the idea. And I have books about sign writing and, mm-hmm. you know, that whole thing it just fascinated me. And I found that the most books on those subjects were in the food area. And it just sort of led me into the cookbook arena. And it's so actually, what I was I was saying,
0: honestly, yeah, yeah, well, no, I was, was- going to say, it's like an interesting way, like an angle on history. It's like instead of like, having to sit there reading a dusty, boring history book. It's like, you're actually yeah. reading something kind of fun and unexpected that, that has history within it. You know, that's it's, right. It, yeah. It's
1: right. It brings it alive in this way yeah. that you weren't expecting because mm-hmm. it does tell you about the people and their culture, wherever it is. Um, yeah. was a really cool. When I got recently that I was going to sell and then I was like, I have to keep this. And it was from Nigeria from like 19, 19- 56, I think. And it was the first cookbook published by a Nigerian woman mm-hmm. for young women there. Um, she also taught cooking there, but she had learned and she grew up there, but she had also gone to school in England and came back. And, you know, she's saying, now, girls, I know that you're thinking that it's silly to use measurements because your aunts and grandmothers all. Don't use that, Mm -hmm. but you're forgetting what you don't realize is that they had many, many mistakes and uh, many dishes were thrown out and much food wasted because they had to learn how much and this is, you know, I'm going to teach you how to use measurements Mm. and all the measurements were in cigarette tins. Oh and, wow. And then there's sections on like if you're if you're in the countryside, this is how you make a stove. You know, if you're in the city, you have a stove. If you're in the countryside, you know, put two kerosene cans, you know, like so. And then you put a board over it. And this whole thing on sort of making your own fire and in the countryside and how to cook on it. And, you know, it's just telling me so much about the countryside, about the city, about the difference. What was
0: that book you
1: know? called? Um it's called Miss
0: Williams's cookbook oh wow I love that that's a great yeah. title yeah. it's funny my when my when I got into cooking my mom I don't, I don't know if she still has this but like her father when she got married in like 1970 something her father's like co-workers wives like yeah. put, on, put on like recipe cards recipes for her to make so she's I mean oh, that's just,
2: great yeah but it's interesting
0: to see that stuff it. and you know it's all like you know, margarine and like sweet and yes. or yeah, it's um, totally. Well, I have to ask, okay, so I'm a huge cookbook fan, a huge cookbook, cookbook collector, and this is yes. nothing, this has nothing to do with your psychology at all. But okay. I, mu- I must ask you, like, what, <laughs> what, what yeah. are the, um, what are the most valuable cookbooks out there? Like, what are the ones that like, are the holy grail? Like, if you found it in a, in a, a state sale, you'd be like, oh my god, I found it. Like, <laughs> what, what would that be?
1: Well, I just bought one of them as my, my pandemic present to myself, which okay. was the first edition of a Renaissance cookbook that was the first, the first book to picture a fork and the first cookbook to actually have illustrations in it. So it was, and what's it called? It's, um, oh God, it's a long title. But it's by uh, Bartolomeo, Bartolomeo Scappi, S-C-A-P-P-I. And okay. it's Renaissance Italy, 1570. Um, and it's just got these wonderful illustrations of cooking over fire, of knives, forks, wow. and, and it's it's a, a really cool one. You're not gonna find it probably in a used bookstore, but yeah, but it was really it was probably like uh, I think I paid fifty one hundred for it, and that was actually really fair. And is I it saw, the, is it
0: the original like paper and the original? I mean, it's no, all, yeah, it like- yeah,
1: and it's an early binding. It's probably so most books pre nineteen hundred came disbound or in in you know paperback that you would take to your binder and have them rebound. So. Um, all those bindings, you're not going to find an original binding, but it's um, probably from the 1700s. So it's a pretty early okay. binding.
0: So do you put gloves on when you look at it? Or do you?
1: Just of Part of the whole thing in my store, I feel like as a young collector, I was so turned off to going into fine and rare bookstores because they were so snooty about it and they always had the, you know, the better books behind the counter and they, you know, would sort of give me the stink eye if I wanted to look at stuff. It wasn't until I started piling up books to buy that and they were like, oh, okay. I guess, <laughs> no, she's okay. But it was so annoying and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna trust my customers to not throw the book across the mm-hmm. room when they get in, yeah. and I want to be the gateway drug for collectors. Like it's sort of like opera; like the the fans are dying out, and we need new collectors and young collectors. Well, and you know, what? Uh, Christ- yeah. up.
0: Oh, oh, and let people touch it. Well, it's interesting. At Christmas, a couple of Christmases ago, Craig called you. And mm-hmm. said, Would you put together some books for Adam for Christmas or Hanukkah as I celebrate? But yes. it's usually Christmas because it's with his family. And you <laughs> sent some really rare and interesting books, which I have on my shelf, but I don't want oh, to up. But there was like one one was <laughs> called like um, it. Punches. It was like punch. Yes. And that was really cool. It's like That's really cool old. One. Like mm-hmm. and then there's and there's an amazing one that you sent that was toasts. It's like Famous like toasts, yes, the to people, but yes. like that—that that felt very rare. And like you know, and do you remember like what that was? Yeah. Or? Oh
1: yeah, of course. I mean, I, I loved putting that together for you because I loved so getting it. Yeah. around and think about what you were going to like, and what yeah, well cool on the shelf. And, but you know, as as rare as certain books are, like that, or some of the really early African American cookbooks or Southern cookbooks are really. Hard to find, oftentimes because of weather or because of earthquakes, there's a a San Francisco one that was very rare because a lot of the copies got destroyed in the earthquake. Um, There are so many more that are not that rare that you Mm -hmm. don't have to wear gloves for, that I do trust that you're going to pick up at my store and love. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I want people to, I mean, great, if you want to collect, you know, and have the first book ever written about olives from the 1500s, (laughs) I will find that for you. I actually did find that for someone once. I will find it for you. But I also want people to be able to just have a shelf of them and not be afraid that, you know, that they shouldn't have it or shouldn't touch it. Well, I remember at your store
2: when I,
0: when I came into your store, which by the way, I should say, and I'll say this in the intro, it's one of the most beautiful cookbook yeah. stores in the country or the world. Yeah. Um, but I remember I got a book there. I think it was from your store. Maybe it was now I'm like going to be embarrassed, but I think it uh, was, it must have been from your, <laughs> your store because it was like a gay Jewish, like cookbook for like the community, like during the AIDS crisis. It was like, it was, Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like yeah. so specific. So, yeah. yeah. It
1: was for um, a, temple just down the street from here um uh, yeah. and That's i love great. that i
0: love that book because it's so like i feel so connected to it obviously because mm-hmm. i'm gay and jewish but also because it's so specific to its time and yeah. its place and um anyway we can go on and on but we have to go back <laughs> to your sandwich so okay <laughs> you so now the other part of all this was like the um san francisco of it all like it seemed as you were because like I try to listen when someone's describing their lunch, like that's my moments were really like key in. Uh-huh. And you talked about yes. the, the district in San Francisco where it was the which was the Richmond. Richmond district. So I guess your sense of place, um, like live you say you grew up in San Francisco. So can you yeah. a little maybe talk a little bit about being tied to where you are, and how, and how long, and yeah. have you have you lived there your whole life, or have I, you-
1: pretty much, yeah, except yes. for those four years at Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I've been here so since 1969, wow. and you know it has changed a lot, uh, but there are also parts of it that are so much still similar to what I remember as a kid and especially those neighborhoods where minorities live and and have lived and still live. Um, The Richmond is one of them that's largely Asian neighborhood, though it also used to have a lot of more Russians, but it still does have a bunch of Russians. But especially when I was growing up, it was people who had gotten out of the Bolshevik revolution and with their jewels intact and Mm -hmm. came here. Um, So but that area is just wonderful. And it's evolved over time as but still is an all asian neighborhood it's just got more modern restaurants um mm-hmm. along it and same with chinatown which i absolutely adore and the mission you know i love walking down mission street which is one block off of valencia which has gotten very popular valencia was like lesbian neighborhood you play- <laughs> I had a trip over someone with a rain stick on the way. <laughs> You're wearing <laughs> your like lesbian Guatemalan pants, the whole <laughs> thing in the hot dog place called Centro, And um, there was a, a women's bookstore called Wise Woman Books there. Okay. And, you know, it was a very different feeling than it is now, where it's very popular shopping street now. But um Mission Street, one block away, has really not changed very much. And I mean there are a few um sort of gentrified spots along it but not not much um you still get the the stores with like the half mannequins with the with pants on and i mean it's just so fun and i that those are the places that i feel the most at home walking down the street because it just you know, reminds me, like La Taqueria, which I I argue always is the best taqueria in the city. It's on mission in 25th. And the first time I went there was with my sixth grade Spanish class. Oh, wow. Okay, and I, I've been, it's been a while, yeah. I know, I've been ordering the same, and the same people work there and own it. And I've been ordering like the same order since then. And, what
0: is it? What's your order?
1: Um, a uh, carne asada, a taco with carne asada, cheese, and a small
0: melón, which is a cantaloupe drink, and mm. a cheese quesadilla to go with it. That sounds delicious. So good. So I think, <laughs> I think what's occurring to me is like, you know, when people flee the city that they're from, it's usually to get away from their families or like the culture they grew up in. That
1: was the uh, only downside <laughs> to staying here. Oh, I
0: was going to ask you, like, did you have a good relationship with your family growing up? And I mean... And- <laughs> yeah. Okay. But...
1: <laughs> I mean, as a teenager, I could not wait to get away. I really was was um, scratching to get out. I was I had had a miserable time at um, my school that I had had to go to after my elementary school um, ended. So my junior high school was this place called marine country day school by the time I entered I was like obviously a lesbian but really bad at sports so I had nothing going for me oh, that's, that's a double bind yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a double bind. Nobody yeah. it, like that's like being a game be a
0: lesbian, being yeah being bad be. at drama club or something
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly 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 it was it was horrible and then I came out in high school and um I was sort of having an affair with a woman that I worked with at Cole Hardware, (laughs) (laughs) such a (laughs) stereotype, but um, my parents were really pissed about it, and they, you know, so we fought all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. I mean, they, you know, it was part, a big part of the fighting was that all of their friends had been gay, and almost all of them died during the the crisis, which was horrible. I mean, at least, at least a dozen, if not more of their very close friends. And so the irony of them being unhappy with my coming out just made it so much more angering and and upsetting
0: I've never heard that story like I've never heard that dynamic before like most of my friends who struggle with their parents when they come out it's like religious reasons yeah no no Republican thing you know
1: and these were all guys that I grew up with like every single day coming home and they were at the house so it didn't you know well we don't want it to be hard for you honey you know they were from the south and they're just I mean they weren't going to not accept it but they just wanted to sort of I think put it off for a while they just weren't ready for me to be i was 16 and she was 28 and they just like they just didn't want to deal with the adult nature of it i think
0: and what brought your parents Um, to san francisco in the first place
1: um being from jacksonville florida they just they just really wanted to get away yeah apparently they caused a scandal by leaving but luckily they left they got here the year before i was born so i have to thank them for that but they're still here and um but when I was in college, but they, so they live like there, it's actually very sweet. So we're, we're close now. And they live about five blocks away from each other and my mother remarried. And so my mom turned 80 last weekend and her husband 88 and my dad is 86 and they all like they take each other to their colonoscopies together (laughs) they go they travel together they go to the opera together they're like I keep saying they're like lesbians it's really cute they
0: They, learn from you yeah
1: yeah really (laughs) (laughs) they just all hang out together and it's really really nice so and it's a great then my sister moved back here from New York and she and her husband have a son and I love that he gets to see this sort of alternative family of yeah. um all all together and friends and you know it's just such a good
0: it's sort of I- ironic them. that they yeah. were so disapproving of you and now they're in a throuple
1: i know I know, totally <laughs> it's so true it's so true yeah, um, <laughs> but they accepted me long ago like it, yeah. it worked itself out um, especially once i got through college and they've been they they also really didn't like this woman that I was with. And so once yeah. I got together with someone who was a little more stable, they were happy. And then now with Paula, my wife, they're they yeah. you know, love her and she's part of the family. Well,
0: it's very poignant. Like it's interesting, is my my parents, I mean, I'm I'm a little younger than you, but not much. I mean, I'm I was born in 1979, so you know, a lot of my childhood was like people dying of AIDS and just yeah. the red ribbons at the Oscars and all that stuff. So, right. so when I came out, it was a similar fear of AIDS. I mean, that was just the mm, hugest part. I can so, and I feel like the new generation that's coming out now, it's like they don't have that sense of like this is a death sentence and like this. That's this, right. And, yeah. I mean, I, I kind
1: of think that's why San Francisco got through this pandemic so well mm-hmm. because we had not only the same experience with a with a deadly pandemic but the same doctor and scientist dr fauci advising us and so you know yeah. we were able to go okay you know remember last time we didn't take it seriously and we thought that they were just against the bathhouses and wanted to close down because they were anti gay and we were wrong there there really was a deadly pandemic that you know that we needed to protect ourselves mm-hmm. from and we didn't and we lost uh, so many people and we're not going to let that happen again so people were super careful here i never in the entire year had a single person try to come in without a mask in my store i mean Mm -hmm. not not once did you stay
0: open the whole time
1: we we had to be closed for just two months okay so um but i mean you know people here were very people still haven't i mean i'll go out at midnight to walk my dog and people are still wearing their masks outside (laughs) like okay yeah we can we can we can take this off
0: now. Same but- here in LA, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to just add a, as a sidebar. Um, yeah. I, I, I was just thinking about cookbooks that were written by gay men who died of AIDS because I know that there was Richard Sachs. Was that? Was
1: yeah, like- Richard Sachs. He was a pastry guy. And yeah. people I talked to loved him. I think Flo Breaker knew him. And, yeah. You know, people who I've talked to really, really loved him a lot. And same with Felipe Rojas, um, who was a Peruvian um. And a guy who was gay I and mean, he wrote a lot about South American cookery and he died mm-hmm. also. Did you read that article in about Zuni Cafe? that was great oh
0: yeah by john birdsall yeah, yeah and i was
1: i talked to the sushi or not sushi chef, the chef from there nate um it shops with us a lot and i was at so he came in the other day and we were talking about it and he said he really didn't know any of that stuff about mm. him and he said it's like i now that rock has turned over and i just want to explore and figure out more about mm. him um so yeah. that was really interesting and i didn't I didn't know any of that history, so.
0: This is a sidebar on a sidebar. But yeah. did you see the movie, Can You Ever Forgive Me?
1: Oh, yeah. I love that movie. I love I mean, it. too. But fact, it, we just saw it a second time.
0: Oh, yeah, because I was thinking about you, because it's about, like, yes, forgery, I mean, yeah. like, classic, you know, yes. book, book collectors, lesbians, yes. you know, and that whole era. Okay. <laughs> so I, had to, I had to put that out there. Okay, we have to go back, to the we're going to return to your childhood just for a moment because we left something out, which is pretty important, which is what what kind of food did you eat growing up and what kind of pe- cooks were your parents?
1: Very health food oriented for my mother. She was really into a lot of vulgar wheat and <laughs> um, <laughs> bran. And um, she, yeah, she. it was very healthy. I didn't, you know, I didn't love it, but she also was a very good cook and she could mix things in like, you know, dirty rice, which actually had liver in it. She would trick us into eating things or, or there was a fish stew. I always hated fish stew, but she called it the swamp. So then I loved it. I wanted well, the liver. it. liver, <laughs> you had,
0: you had liver on your sandwich today. So it worked. Yes, that's right. It yeah. did work the okay. only thing
1: i wouldn't eat of course was anything shaped like an animal like she'd make a really cute pancake in the shape of a bunny and i would start crying which just probably <laughs> made her so pissed off and i totally don't blame her um I and there you were all those too. years
0: later eating roast beef on your yeah, exactly. animal rights rally so <laughs> no. yeah but you wouldn't eat the bunny pancake
2: okay, uh, okay.
0: So do you not wait <laughs> will you not eat like a um like lamb head or whatever the chefs do like
1: Oh, no, I probably would. Yeah. I'm I'm enough of a gourmet (laughs) that I couldn't pass
0: it out. When I I was working for Serious Eats, it was right when they opened. It was like right when they started their website. And they had an event at Adam Perry Lang's like barbecue place in New York. And they got a whole pig. And we all put rubber gloves on and it it, it was like a whole smoked pig with his face staring at us and then you just like reached in and grabbed grabbed a hunk of meat and it was disturbing but delicious yeah yeah
1: Yeah. i did i was oddly enough in palau um uh, several years ago which is near the philippines and we were at the inauguration of the president It's a very long story, but there was a whole roast pig there. And like that, it was just, yeah, you didn't have to dig into it, but the face was there and it was, it was pretty intense.
0: So you mentioned earlier a little bit, you just kind of quickly glossed past it, but like being a little OCD about.
1: And also I was just going to say about my dad, you were asking about what kind of food my parents made. My dad was, um, there are like certain things that I just can't eat today because they remind me of the things that he would make because he was so bad at it and still (laughs) still is and he's so the funny thing is he loves a good meal but he has a hard time distinguishing like he'll have a chocolate cake at at you know, Zim's, which is an old, you know, I don't even know how to, like an old diner and say, declare mm. it the best chocolate cake he's ever had. And then he'll go to restaurant Danielle the next yeah. night in New York and he'll declare that the best chocolate cake he's ever had. He doesn't like, so um, he would make us corned beef hash from a can or brisket that was just like leather, dry and horrible. And those are like the two main things I remember if you fall back on to make Are your that. parents Yes. Okay. Oh, and I'm I, Jewish. Yeah.
2: You're Jewish.
0: Yeah, that all felt very Jewish to me. Like the. Yes. And yeah. Even, yeah. and even the restaurant of it all, like loving like the deli, like chocolate cake, like yeah. My, my parents, like my parents, go to these restaurants where it's like you know like Italian American food, and they think it's like the best pasta. And then I'll take them to like something I read about and like Bon Appetit or like, yeah. Times, they're like oh that was terrible. Like oh god. Yeah. Well, oh, like sure. like like all that like you know like authentic Italian, I mean, authentic, but like, you know, pasta made by hand to them. Yes. is not as delicious as like, <laughs> you know, penne alla vodka. Or right,
1: right, right. Yeah. yeah, I think the food he grew up with sort of in, you know, in the Depression era and wartime in, in Florida mm-hmm. uh, was not memorable, even though his mother grew up in Cuba and it should have been really interesting food. It was not. And mm. so he's, you know, he's still is like just as happy with, you know, salmon from a can as he would be from like a wild caught salmon. And so when,
0: when did your awakening happen in terms of like when did you first like cook something or eat something where you're like ah there's a whole other world out there than- I,
1: well actually my first cookbook that I had was the one by Evan Kleiman about mm. uh, pasta okay uh, pasta rustica and I thought that I was really good at making it when I first moved back home after college and I had my first little apartment and you know I realized now it was just awful I mean I would (laughs) overcook this fettuccine and cut up bacon and just like throw it in (laughs) but but um and probably button mushrooms but I uh it was an awakening nonetheless and um that really got me started on on being interested in cooking and exploring it and
0: and when you mentioned, uh, I know I just tried to bring it up yes. earlier, but okay, the, sorry. Um, the OCD, well the OCD because you said I just remember what you said, but you said that like you would eat the same roast beef sandwich every day. Yes. So what what was that about, and like where did that begin, and when did that end?
1: It started really young. I would have like peanut butter and jelly sandwich every single day for lunch, and then you know the next year it was cream cheese and jelly, and maybe the next year after that it was honey and peanut butter. But it was always like I just needed I don't know somehow. I think I really needed the consistency mm-hmm. of that. I didn't have a lot of, um, I didn't have as much consistency of home as as I probably should have. It's so hard to, to remember, but one of the most important moments for me ever in an early therapy session I had was in talking about, how independent I was as a kid, how I would go under these houses and, and go through the mail or climb trees around the neighborhood or I crawl under people's houses and mm-hmm. listen to their conversation. Like I was totally into that. And I, I you, oh, and I also, I had all these, there were all these shopkeepers around the neighborhood that I would check in with, that I considered myself friends with, but also I think were kind of keeping an eye on me. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the, the corner store, London Market, where I would get my bazooka gum, and Joe was always there. And then there was another store on on California, a couple more, and you know, I just would stop there on my route every day on my bike. And um, I described to my therapist how I was so independent, and she said, "Did you did it ever occur to you that maybe you were independent because you had to be?" Mm-hmm. like, oh. <laughs> "No, yeah. it didn't. I always thought that I was independent because I." was sort of proud of myself and and you know and I was just an independent person but I think I kind of I kind of wasn't able to depend on a lot of consistency at home Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, so well it makes me think of those objects we were talking about earlier and like this idea of like creating your own little world where you could be in charge like Mm -hmm. and and then it kind of and it translates nicely to the bookstore because it's like Yes. Now you, now you totally. have your own world filled with objects that you curate, and it's yeah. your, your space, and you can let yeah. in who you want to. And like if somebody's mm-hmm. coming in that you don't want, you know, it's like that's right. <laughs> you create, you've created your own world for yourself, so it's it's yeah. kind of a beautiful continuation yeah. of the same idea.
1: And it's really fun, I have to say, to share it with other people. Like the my collection here, I have a whole library filled with books, and for years, no one was interested interested in it. I mean. My partner isn't really into it. The um, I mean, you know, she's into it if I if I describe something to her, but she she would never like ask on her own what something is. My friends weren't interested. And then one day this I ran into a woman who was a customer of ours at the pet shop at the antiquarian book fair, and it turned out that she was writing a book about a book thief. It was a, a true story, it was really fun. And she wanted to interview collectors of that were unusual and so uh, women, they're not that many women collectors, especially I think at the time I was like 30. So she asked if she could interview me and I said, sure. So she came over and she freaked out over my library and just loved it. And I thought if I could have this all the time in my life, I would be so happy. And so I feel like what I've created is that because Mm -hmm. these people are coming to me who have this passion and I can share it with them. And the way I've curated stuff, it's like a, uh, you know, spider web they go in and they get caught and they're totally totally. and it makes me so happy because and and you know we show each other this mutual respect of loving the books and Mm -hmm. it's just so fun for me to see them get a kick out of it and i'm kind of a temporary collector now where i can have these books for a little while and enjoy them i catalog them i put them on my website and then i'll see them go either at the store or i'll put them on on twitter or, or instagram and people respond to them and buy them. And it's just like, oh my God, you know, or, or they'll say like, I just had off the Mickey Mouse cookbook from 1975. Oh yeah, I
0: think I saw but that on your So of-
1: many people wrote in like, oh, I used to make this from that. Oh, <laughs> that was my first cookbook. And you know, I just, oh, it makes me so happy to, to share that with people.
0: Oh, well, that's a lovely note to end your therapy session on. Thank you. Because <laughs> I, I think it's like, I do feel like we came full circle because I feel at the beginning, you know, with this idea of like you, you as a child and like crawling through the mud and get, I was trying to like connect the, <laughs> connect the dots, but I do feel like it all is of a piece. But now yes. I'm gonna use these final moments to ask you tons of questions about cookbooks. Okay, so
1: you've <laughs> given me so much to
0: think about now. I'm oh, good. I mean, I don't, tra- I don't even charge anything, but- <laughs> yeah, I know, it's
1: great. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, but I wanted to ask, you, okay, so first, like, cause the, all these questions have been occurring to me as we've been talking. Sure. So, and this is like one of those cheesy questions, but if the store, God forbid, was on fire, Oh, God. I know. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry God. to say that. I know. I know. I don't mean to trigger your fears, but what books would you grab first?
1: Oh God. Um, you know, that's so funny. I have thought about it with my house before, yeah. but I've never thought about it with the
0: store or your house. I mean, you could do your house too, if you want the
1: house. Um, it would be the, there's this rare Southern cookbook, but it was the second cookbook ever written by an African-American woman in the United States. It's called What's, What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Old Southern Cooking.
2: Sure, I love that. And
1: she was, I'll, I'll tell you briefly the story because it is really cool. She moved from the South with her husband after slavery, she had been enslaved, um, came to San Francisco with their children, one of whom she had along the way and started a pickling and preserving business. She won a bunch of awards for her pickles and preserves and wrote this cookbook. It came out in like 1881. It was published over in Oakland. And she didn't, she was illiterate, but she had somebody else help her write it. And uh, a lot of copies were lost in the earthquake. So there aren't very many. And I managed to find myself a copy. It was $4,000 then, but now it sells for like 10,000 online. It's, or I mean, at auction, it's very hard to find. And I've always loved it. And for a long time, until I got this copy last week, it was my most valuable cookbook. And recently, uh, like a couple of years ago, the census records for um, African Americans living in San Francisco came online, or for all of San Francisco came online, and you could find out where a lot of people lived. I found out she lived a block from my store. Mm. And my store was a butcher shop at the turn of the century. And so that means she had to have shopped there
0: that's so cool. And I know.
1: And I was like, why was I drawn to that book mm-hmm. and, you know, and pay that much for it. And then it turns out that like, she had for sure a connection to the space that I'm in now. And, and it's beautiful know,
0: it's that it's in really your hands cool. too. It's like, I can imagine a book like that, just being in some like very rich person's house. Like, oh, that's, what uh, I've been, you know, this means nothing to me, but for you, it's like, you appreciate it so much and get so much love it. pleasure love it. out of it. Yeah. All right. What are the other two? Come on.
1: Oh, um, okay. okay, so let's see. Um oh a my signed copy of Cannery Row by Steinbeck. Oh, okay. that's not a cookbook though. Should I be saying just cookbooks?
0: I mean it's interesting, but no, I think you have to do cookbooks. Okay. It's, it's um, the theme here. Oh are we doing are we doing your house or are we doing the store now? I, no, I okay,
1: it. I guess we should go back to the store. Um mm, mm, I have some really behind the counter. Well, I okay, I have one that I just sold, but I haven't sent to her yet that Tony Tipton Martin just bought it's the second ever cocktail book written by an African-American okay. uh, and extremely rare because it was published in Montana he was a, um, a bartender at a at a saloon in Montana and it only went through it went through three printings but each one was just a paperback this one's signed by him on the cover and super super rare so that I'd have to save, because yes. there's only one copy known in the whole country, and it's at the Montana Historical Society. So I would definitely have to grab that one. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> and then the last one, there's a really cool old Mexican cookbook that okay. is about cooking in Puebla um, That from the 1800s that I think is a really, really special book. Well,
0: what's interesting about your answer to this question, now we can actually bring it back to psychology for a second, okay. which is that... Uh, I noticed that like your the books that you saved were almost out of a sense of duty and like preservation. Mm, they weren't yeah. necessarily like personal to you, although the first one was personal to you because of the connection to it. But uh, the, the, that's yeah. almost like you, you see yourself almost like the like, you know, the, like, caretaker. Sort of, like, yeah, caretaker you're right. You're right. of, of right. these, these stories. I um,
1: feel yeah. that way. I mean, that's so funny that you say that because sometimes people will come in and Pick a book off the shelf that um, has been there for like seven years or something to buy it, and I always say to them, you know, this book has been waiting for you a really long time.
2: Mm, so love that.
1: yeah, so I feel very much like I'm the, the caretaker for a while, and then these are wow. going to go to their proper homes. It's sort of like you know, a collector gets all their stuff together, it's like making a dandelion, and then I'm there to blow on it and see them receive themselves in all these different libraries and homes. That's so nice.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I guess as a final question, because we we ate up our time so quickly, yeah, I know. although I, I could keep it. you here forever. Um, <laughs> what are some books, this is a different, like, yeah, I'm approaching this differently now, that like are actually readily available, but that most people don't know about. Like, what are some cookbooks that like aren't like your, oh, you know, mastering okay, the art of French cooking or something? You know.
1: Yeah, there's a fabulous um publisher called Interlink, and they publish all these great cookbooks that are a lot of Middle Eastern and Georgian and uh, from places that you just would not expect at all. I really, really love those books because, and I feel like a lot of people don't know about them. They did a great Afghanistani one last year called Perwana. Mm-hmm. They um, they just came out with an Egyptian one. Um, they're they're just really, really interesting. They have an Iraqi cookbook, a, a couple Syrian ones called the Aleppo Cookbook, and I I just love that they oh an Ethiopia a great mm-hmm. Ethiopian cookbook. So so they've really paid attention for a much longer than the rest of the cookbook world has in uh, on cultures that we are just so not that familiar with. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, my favorite title from them is called Mune. And it's this huge book of Lebanese preserving. The entire book, it's like a $45 tome all about pickling and preserving Lebanese cuisine. I mean, it's just, I I love that attention.
0: And people can go to your website and and order it? Yes, yep, it's all on there. Okay. I have a controversial question to ask you that could open a whole can of worms. (laughs) All right. I feel feel like you're game, um, even though we're at the end, but I just have to ask this. So, What what is, as a bookseller, what is your attitude about selling books by, I'm going to quote unquote, like bad chefs or like, people who now have been brought exposed as, you know, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Mario Batali. Yeah.
2: yeah but like- <laughs>
1: Luckily, I never really sold many of those anyway. Like I don't sell any of the Food Network. I did have his... And I couldn't even sell them off at my half-off sale at the <laughs> end of the year, so I okay. ended up just donating them to the library. But yeah, I try to not. I mean, there's certain ones, you know. We were we were referencing Alison Roman earlier, and I had. Oh, I mean, it, I
0: never said it. You, no, you. no, I
1: know, but I have to <laughs> say, it. she's. You know, I, I stand behind her I know her pretty well we've we've gotten to know each other over the years um with her coming to give talks I really like her I consider her a friend and her books are wonderful the cookbooks I mean the 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 recipes in there they work really well I don't feel like she's a thief I certainly think she misspoke and regretted it and tried to apologize and and I I just have a feeling she put her foot in her mouth and didn't didn't mean to lump two um, Asian American women together in what she was trying to say and And you know, I, I don't know who is well known, who can say that they haven't done something like that that mm-hmm. they've regretted. I, in right. fact, I once made fun of Mario Batali's children on Twitter and with John Burzall, and <laughs> and he saw he saw yeah. it, and that was like, oh, I just wanted to kill myself. I'm like yeah. now I don't care, but sure. um, I, I <laughs> I mean, I've like, oh, gone I through that. that day, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I've, been, I've got my my feet in hot water, as you know. Yeah, when I, when I him, I like,
1: yeah. Okay, thank God. <laughs> you know, I don't have to care anymore. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I mean, so we've all done stuff like that, but. For I never carried Paula Deen um, uh-huh. books. I don't carry any Rachel. I, I I like books that are they can be simple and easy, but they can't be dumbed down, and they can't be just like written by someone else in a in just a slapdash way. It mm-hmm. has to it has to be a good book but
0: yeah the Lummy Island one oh I have like three more signed copies of those I'm not <laughs> sure but I'm gonna do it now. I got into a huge fight yeah. well Craig bought that for me for Christmas this year because we went to that restaurant and that right. and then when, when I read him the New York Times article he's like, well, I still think we can keep that book because it's, it's a memento of our trip there. And da, da, da. I was like, I yeah. don't know, this guy seems yeah. like a real asshole. Yeah. And like, he got really funny. mad. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because I got, re- I mean, Mario Batali, I mean, this is, we're on such a tangent here, but, yeah. um, but Mario-, <laughs> Mario Batali was the reason I got interested in cooking. I mean, I would watch his show religiously on the Food Network. Yeah. And when, I, when I was in law school, I was like, oh my God, look at that. And I would make like his lamb dishes. I'm like, wow, this is yes. amazing. So, but at the same time, when I, th- I draw a distinction between Mario Batali's behavior and like physically harming women and yes. physically yeah. like raping people versus Alison yeah. like, Al- Roman, who absolutely like, made a mistake. and But I, I think what happens on Twitter is people get lumped together. Yeah. And, this, and this idea of, I mean quote-unquote cancel culture but like you know it's like once you've done your misdeed it doesn't matter if you are Harvey Weinstein or it doesn't matter if you are sweet like a bad you know stupid thing like it's like well to me there is a difference between being Harvey Weinstein and Alison Roman and And, um,
1: and you also get to this point where there's no amount of formulating an apology that will work I just I, I advise people if I can just don't 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 go there because it's so you your apology gets made fun of it's not good enough it's not you know it's not sincere enough it's just like oh it's a yeah. really hard position to be in and uh yeah it's <laughs> it, we all we all seem to learn that the hard way as we're sort of coming up and becoming yeah. more, well known and, and being interviewed more and, and you just you know you think you're being honest and funny and and off the cuff and then you find yourself in hot water and it's it, extremely stressful and and hard to backtrack
0: from. Well, let's hope this podcast doesn't destroy either of our careers. <laughs> <It really laughs> is
1: so
0: um, no, but that was that was great. I'm actually really glad we talked about that because I think it's so, on everyone's minds a little bit. And I think yeah. in your position, you know, where you're kind of seeing all these books come through, it's interesting to hear your take on it. Yeah. Um, well, we kind of we we did a great job, I think. What do you oh, think? Thank you so much. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I have to say,
1: my first Zoom experience has been very positive.
0: Oh, good. Well, I hope. This- <laughs> I hope this opens a whole new world for you. And yes. uh, and yes. I can't wait to come to San Francisco and come back to your store and buy know, some stuff.
1: I I can't wait to see you in person again.
0: All right, Celia. Well, thank you so right. much.
1: Okay. Have a great rest thank of your you. day. Okay, Bye. you too. Bye.